to Acts chapter 28, uh, verse 17, as we conclude uh, our time, our nearly year-long series in the book of Acts, following the movement of the gospel and the expansion of the kingdom of Christ in the first uh, almost 30 years of Christian history. We find ourselves now in the late 50s, maybe about 60 A.D. or so, as we meet up with Paul. As we saw last week, he had finally made it to Rome, the place where Jesus had confirmed to him that he would testify to the risen Lord. Jesus said, "You have uh, in Acts chapter 23, verse 11, just as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so also will you do in Rome. And now Paul is in Rome. Acts is going to end with Paul still in Rome. You might think that because since about midway through the book of Acts, the, the, the book is primarily centered on Paul, that, that the book of Acts would end with Paul's life ending. The tradition tells us that, that Paul, uh, uh, th- there are two sort of theories, but the more prominent one, uh, uh, the more uh, accepted one, is that Paul uh, did have his day in court before Caesar sometime around 60 AD or, or uh, uh, between 60 and 62, and then was released from prison, that he went west maybe as far as Spain, which is uh, what he wanted to do with the gospel, and was likely arrested again, returned to Rome, and then put to death uh, by having his head removed from his body under the order of uh, Caesar Nero, probably sometime between the years of 62 and 64 AD. But that's not where Acts ends. Acts ends with Paul not yet having preached to Caesar, still under house arrest in Rome. Acts ends rather anticlimactically. Some of you may have been uh, fans of the TV series Lost several years ago on ABC. Worst series ending ever, or best, depending on who, who, uh, how you liked the, the series and how it ended. Uh, it didn't end the way many people thought it would. People were expecting the TV series Lost to, to end with this final resolution and explanation of all of the mysterious things that had happened in the several years before of the series. And virtually none of those questions were answered. Luke ends his history of the Acts of the Apostles in a similar fashion. He doesn't bring resolution to the story of Paul. But yet, friends, that wasn't Luke's purpose to begin with. If we turn all the way back to the beginning of of Acts, Acts chapter 1, Luke begins his work this way. In the first book, O Theophilus, Theophilus is the person he's writing this book to or writing it for. In the first book, I have dealt with all the things that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them. And after his uh, suffering by many, uh, after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Dear friends, Acts is not about Paul. Acts is not about Peter. The book of Acts is not even really about the church. The book of Acts is about Jesus. It's not about what Paul is doing. It's not about Peter is doing. It's not about what necessarily primarily what the church is doing. It's about what the risen Lord Jesus is doing through his servants. So Acts ends with Paul still in prison. And, and, and some of us may have this unresolved feeling within us that, that, that Luke should have brought this to a better ending. Come on, Luke. You, you can write better than this. 
But that's not Luke's purpose. Luke's purpose is not to bring resolution to Paul's life. And at the same time, Luke's purpose is not to show that the gospel has, or, or, or that the work that Jesus has done has somehow stopped near the end of Paul's life, because it hasn't. Because it hasn't. Luke ends his history, Acts, almost with a big, fat, to be continued at the end of it. Here we'll find this morning in the final chapter of Acts, Luke portraying Paul imprisoned in Rome, but the gospel of Jesus Christ still moving unhindered throughout the world. For us this morning, as as we look at this text, I I hope that we would see especially that through this and through the life of Paul and, and of the other apostles and disciples and through the church, that Jesus Christ will continue to empower the witnesses of his gospel until the gospel has accomplished all that Christ has intended for it. Christ's kingdom will keep growing. The gospel will keep spreading. It will not stop until Jesus has said, I'm, I'm ready now to call all of my people home. Understanding this about the gospel, about the power of Christ in the gospel, how Jesus himself uses the gospel and those who preach it, I would hope that we would find confidence then in the power of the gospel to proclaim salvation by faith in Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance wherever we may go, wherever we may find ourselves. Luke ends Acts with a big fat to be continued. Do you know who the work, the power of Christ and the gospel is to be continued through? Us, Christian, through us. As we close this book, let's read the text together. Will you stand with me as we honor God by reading Acts 28, verses 17 through 31? There we find Paul in uh, Rome, and uh, as we saw last week, some of the other brothers and sisters from churches around the area had come to visit with him. And in verse 17, we read this. After three days, Paul called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation." For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and to speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, they're speaking of Christianity or the way, for regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes they have, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. 
Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. Paul lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. May God bless his church as we study his word. You may be seated. I've said that in this text we see, and in the way that Luke ends this volume of the church's history, that Jesus Christ will continue to empower the witnesses, his witnesses of his gospel, until that gospel has accomplished all that he intends for it. And that knowing that, that we should find confidence in the power of the gospel to proclaim salvation by faith in Jesus with all boldness and without hindrance. So why then should we have such confidence in the gospel? Why should we believe? Why should we risk all of our lives, not not just this life, but also the next, and everything we do with this life, why should we risk it all on the power of this simple message that God saves rebellious sinners as they trust in his son Jesus, who died on a cross for their sins and was raised from the dead? Why should we trust it? First of all, because in verses 17 through 24, we see that the gospel compels The gospel compels people. It is a compelling message. For 2,000 years, this message of how God saves sinners has been compelling. It's compelling for at least two reasons that we see in Paul's life here at the end of his life in these verses. The gospel compels, first of all, because it offers hope. The gospel offers hope. Now that Paul has arrived in Rome, he calls for a meeting with the Jewish elders of the city. This is what Paul does everywhere he goes. We've seen it so many times in Acts. He first reaches out to the Jewish population of whatever city he may happen to be in. And and in fact, uh, Rome, the city of Rome, the capital city of the empire, had a fairly large Jewish population. Now these Jewish elders are gracious enough to comply and they attend the home where Paul is sitting under house arrest. And there we find Paul giving to them the same defense that he's been giving over the last five chapters of Acts, that he's under arrest not for violating the law of the temple in Jerusalem or any part of the law of Moses, but he's under arrest only for preaching what he says is the hope of Israel. It's because of the hope of Israel that I'm in these chains, Paul says. So what is the hope of Israel? What's the the reason for Paul being in chains now toward the end of his life? The hope of uh, of Israel, dear friends, is the Messiah, is the Christ, the promised Savior of the world, a godly king who who will redeem God's people and people from among the nations of the world. The hope of the Israel, uh, the hope of Israel is the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent that we read about in Genesis 3. The hope of Israel is the offspring of Abraham through whom God would bless the entire world that we read about in Genesis 15 and 17. The hope of Israel is a king in the line of David whose reign will never end from 2 Samuel 7. And is the dawning of a new covenant relationship with God, wherein God will dwell with man, as we read about in Jeremiah 31, that he'll place his, his, he'll give us a new heart, he'll replace our hearts of stone with a heart of flesh, that he'll make his dwelling place in us. Friends, know this, that Jesus, the Son of God, the promised Messiah, is the embodiment and fulfillment of the collective hope of Israel. Good news like this is compelling. 
When you're part of a people who have been longing for, who have been waiting for some, uh, some redemption from God, some, some fixing to your problem of, of sin and rebellion against God, when you're part of the people of Israel in Jesus' day, in Paul's day, having waited for thousands of years for the hope of God, for the promise of God to come to pass, when you hear that that promise has come, when, when, when that Messiah is now on the scene, when that king has conquered, that's it's compelling news. It's compelling to the Jews. The offer of a realized hope is worth listening to. But it's not ultimately compelling just because it offers hope, but because it offers a hope that is reasonable. The gospel is incredibly reasonable. The gospel is, is not this, this story that, that an early group of Galilean fishermen concocted and, and, and spread around the, the world that just kind of showed up out of nowhere and had no connection to history and, and no, no logical understanding. Rather, the gospel is incredibly reasonable. Paul demonstrates to these Jewish rulers who come to meet him uh, at his house that faith in Jesus Christ as the promised Messiah and the hope of Israel is not only believable, but it's rational, it's logical, it's reasonable. You should believe this, Paul is saying to the Jews. On the day that they appointed for Paul's hearing, for him to, to share... Uh, with them, his message and the message he's been preaching everywhere he's gone. He spends the entire day, Luke says, from morning to evening, from dawn to dusk, expounding the way to them, preaching to them the gospel, showing to them what Christian life looks like. It's not entirely different from the Jewish way of living. In fact, it's quite similar. The only difference is that as a Christian, you, you, you're one who's just trusted and believed that Jesus is the promised Messiah. The word here that, Paul, that, that Luke uses for Paul expounding the way, explaining to them more, more fully the way, is the same word that Luke uses in Acts chapter 18, verse 26, where Priscilla and Aquila, that, that missionary couple, took aside the young, talented Apollos and explained to him more accurately the faith that is in Jesus Christ. Apollos was a, a gifted and, and charismatic preacher and teacher, understanding much about Jesus, but missing some parts. And they took him aside and explained more fully that picture of the faith to him. And so the picture here is of Paul, in a similar way, adding to the knowledge that the Jewish leaders already had about God and God's plan and the hope of Israel, expanding their ability to rightly understand who Jesus is in light of the scriptures. Luke tells us he began with Moses and all of the prophets. That's for us today. That's all of the Old Testament that we have. Paul spent all day long. By the way, I would love to go to that Bible conference teaching these Jewish leaders how Jesus is all and in throughout on every single page of the Old Testament. Paul's day-long lecture focuses on two points throughout the scriptures. First of all, the kingdom of God. He says he spoke to, Luke says he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. And here there are several connections to the Gospels in which Jesus himself was preaching about the kingdom of God. He, he does it, we see, in Matthew 4.23, Luke 4.43. Jesus telling kingdom parables. The kingdom is like this. The kingdom of heaven will be like this. The same message that Jesus preached, so now also is Paul preaching. He's just picking up where Jesus left off. 
The message that God rules and reigns in a saving way through His Son, Jesus, the promised Messiah. That's the message of the kingdom. God rules, He reigns through His Son, Jesus, the Messiah. The kingdom of God is of ultimate importance to these Jewish elders meeting with Paul in Rome because the hope of Israel as a person, as a promise realized, the hope of Israel was to be a godly king of a kingdom that would never end. So it makes total sense for Paul to focus on the kingdom of God. And he's saying the king has come, the kingdom is being realized. He focuses on the kingdom of God, but he also goes through the law and the prophets to focus on the identity of Jesus. He's preaching about the kingdom and that Jesus is the Messiah. Here on this point, Paul uses both again, Moses and the prophets, to make this point. Paul has done this before in Acts chapter 24, verses 14 through 21. He referred to it, to the law and the prophets, as already speaking about Jesus in Acts chapter 26. We've seen Peter do this. Peter using the Old Testament to defend the gospel of Jesus in Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 36. And we saw Stephen do it as he was about to be stoned to death in Acts chapter 7. Paul, Peter, Stephen... The several others that, that we'll never read about because their names aren't recorded, but the faithful sermons that they preached out of the Old Testament to point people to Jesus the Messiah. Each of these people is able to so argue from the Old Testament for the identity of Jesus in part because of Jesus' own teaching of his disciples after his resurrection. Luke chapter 24, verse 27 tells us that the risen Jesus met with the disciples uh, on that road to Emmaus, and there he began with Moses and all the prophets and explained to them everything in all the scriptures concerning himself. Even from its first days, the church of Jesus Christ has been convinced of the identity of Jesus as the promised Christ, as the Messiah who, was, who, who didn't come up out of nowhere, who was not a brand new idea, but actually a rather old promise now fulfilled by God, testified to by both Moses and the prophets. The gospel is reasonable, dear friends. The identity of Jesus that Paul defends is that of king of the kingdom of God. So Paul focuses his whole day-long uh, sermon or, or, or lecture, if you will, this teaching moment from the law and the prophets, about the kingdom of God, about the identity of Jesus, because those two things are inextricable. Those those two things cannot be separated. There is no kingdom without a king, and there's no king without a kingdom. And the king that God promises will be a conquering king. Now, Jesus conquers in a way that's different than how the Jews were looking for a king to conquer. They wanted a political king, a, 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 a a geopolitical uh, sort of hero that they could put on a pedestal and, and, and who would return Israel to its, its uh, prior prominence in the area. But that's not the king that Jesus came to be. He came to be a king whose kingdom was not geopolitical but was spiritual and was not limited by geographical boundaries but would extend into the hearts of every person who would trust in him. Dear friends, Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom of, of, of God, is not limited to a small stretch of land in Palestine today. The kingdom of God encompasses the globe today in the hearts of believers like you and me who are trusting in Jesus Christ the King and who are following obediently Him who gave His life and rose again from the dead. The gospel is compelling. That message is compelling because it offers hope and because it is reasonable. But listen, 
the message that Paul preaches to these Jewish elders that day is not a partial gospel. It's the full gospel. The whole gospel is compelling, church. The whole, the full gospel is compelling. So we need to, as Christians who say we believe the gospel, we need to believe and to learn to proclaim the full gospel. Now listen, saying that, saying that, that God saves sinners as they trust in Jesus and make him king of their life, that is a shortened form of the gospel. Dear friends, that's not the full gospel. The, to preach the full gospel takes a lot longer than that. Now, that's the most important part of the gospel that every sinner needs to know. But that in and of itself is not, not necessarily quite as compelling as the full gospel. The full gospel is this, that ever before there was an earth or a universe, there was a God who was not created by any other thing, who has always existed, who is independent of all other things in the universe. And this God chose of his own free will to create out of nothing everything that we see, including you and I. And scripture tells us that this God who created everything that we see and know, who created us as human beings, made us for a relationship with him. Not to be his playthings, not, not, not to be his, his pawns on his cosmic chessboard, but that God created you for a relationship of love and worship and mutual knowledge of one another, that, that we would know God, that we would love God, and that our lives would abound in worship of him as he gives to us every single thing that we need. The full gospel goes on to tell us that every single person, beginning with our first parents, Adam and Eve, have rejected this relationship with God. We've said, nope, we think we can do better. Adam and Eve did it first, and from their original sin there in the Garden of Eden, disobeying God's only command, they brought upon themselves and upon uh, all of creation the effects of sin. They became sinners, all of their offspring were born sinners, and all of creation has been broken because of the effects, the cosmic effects of sin. But this God, this uncreated creator, This independent being of all things does not now leave his creation to just uh, wallow in the brokenness of sin. Neither does he seek to wipe it all off of the map. But what does this uncreated creator do? He wants to redeem it. He wants to rescue it. He intends to save this creation from the effects of his own creatures who have fallen and broken their relationship with him. So how does God fix that? He fixes that by taking on flesh in the man Jesus living a life without sin, never never disobeying God the Father, giving his life on the cross to die in our place. The Bible tells us the wages of sin is death. Jesus was no sinner. He didn't deserve to die, and yet he did anyway, willingly. Death on a cross that he didn't deserve. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, Scripture tells us. So Jesus took our penalty upon the cross and he rose dying there and he rose again three days later to demonstrate that as God in flesh, he had power over sin and death. That he was the king that God had promised to his people all throughout the Old Testament. That he was the one that was going to rescue this broken creation and bring everything back into a right relationship with God. The full gospel tells us that every person who trusts in Jesus Christ as Savior and as Lord, who repents of their sin and gives all of their life to Jesus, will be saved. Their sins will be forgiven. They'll have the promise of eternal life, and they will become part of God's family. His workmanship, to use Paul's words, created by God to do good works in this world, the greatest work of which is to share the full gospel, the whole story. Now listen, the story of Neil Armstrong landing on the moon, being the first man to walk on the moon, is an interesting story. 
But if all you know is this, that Neil Armstrong was the first man to walk on the moon, that's not a particularly compelling story. People who only know this about Neil Armstrong are the kind of yahoos that are come up with the conspiracy theories that Neil Armstrong never walked on the moon. And there was just all this Hollywood fabrication. And maybe you're one of those conspiracy theorists. That's fine. I don't judge you. We could talk about it some other time. But Neil Armstrong, being the first man to walk on the moon, is not a compelling story. But the whole story of how Neil came to be the first man to walk on the moon, all of the research that was done, all the calculations that had to be put together, the feats of engineering to put a man in a rocket, which is crazy, by the way, shoot him into space, drop him on the moon, and then bring him back safely, that is a compelling story. So... The fact that Jesus Christ died for sinners, rose again, so that whoever believes in him will be saved and not face eternal separation from God in a place called hell, that's an interesting story. But the more compelling story is the full gospel from creation until consummation. So, dear Christian, if you love the gospel, preach the full gospel. Give people a compelling gospel to believe in. Not a pithy pithy version of what we know to be so much better. The gospel compels. Have confidence in the gospel because it's compelling. Have confidence in the gospel also, verses 24 through 29 show us, because the gospel divides. That may be a strange thing to say, I have confidence in this thing because it divides, but it does. The gospel divides people. We've seen it all through Jesus' life. We've seen it uh, all through the book of Acts, and here now we see it yet again. The gospel divides because it draws lines. The gospel draws lines in the sand. We live in a culture in a day and age where, where uh, people love to draw lines in the sand. They say, you're either with me or you're against me. Yet at the same time, we like to say that we're, don't, we're not drawing lines at all. It's, we live in a really weird place and time. But the gospel draws clear lines and it tells you that it draws clear lines. Verse 24 is revealing to us, isn't it? It says, and some were convinced by what Paul said, but others disbelieved. That word convince means here to cause someone to believe something and to act upon that belief. So what we're seeing here, I believe, is, is not that some of the Jewish elders who were listening to Paul preach that day were like, oh yeah, that's a pretty good argument. But, but they were going, that's a good argument and I need to do something about it. That's a good argument that impacts my life and I need to act upon the knowledge that I now have. They're convinced and, and I think express genuine belief in Jesus Christ as the promised Messiah. Sadly though, Luke tells us, not all are convinced. Some disbelieved. Others remained after Paul's day-long walk through the Old Testament to show the kingdom of God come to pass in the person of Jesus. Some hear it and are still unbelieving. It's sad. It's lamentable. But it's no surprise to us. It's no surprise to us that some believe and others don't because we've seen the gospel have this effect everywhere that it has gone all through Jesus' ministry, all through the the life of the church and Acts, we have seen that everywhere the gospel goes, it divides. This is a true, clear uh, clear truth about the gospel, that it draws lines between believers and non-believers. It always has, it always will, and Jesus has enough integrity to tell us at the outset that it will. 
It separates those who have faith in the gospel, those who are believing Jesus Christ, those who have submitted their whole life to Christ from those who do not. The gospel is a blade that cleaves those who are in Christ by faith in him from those who remain in their unrepentance. It is a sharp blade. It is a decisive blade and it cuts clearly every time. In fact, this is at least one reason that the gospel is so dividing. It draws lines, but also because it's dividing because it requires repentance. This is why the gospel hurts. This is why we can speak of the gospel as a blade that cleaves people from one another. Blades cut and cutting hurts. It's why they put you to sleep when they take you into surgery. The gospel cuts. It divides because it requires something of people. It requires repentance. We find in verses 25 through 28 that the Jews that heard Paul that day had an intense debate among themselves that would ultimately uh, culminate in their separation from that place. They would leave uh, still conflicted. But their final separation comes from one last word that Paul gives. You see that in verse 25, disagreeing among themselves. They departed after Paul had made one statement. The statement is this, the Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull and with their ears they can barely hear. With their eyes, and their eyes they have closed lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and repent and I would heal them. Here in these two verses, 26 and 27, Paul quotes from Isaiah, the prophet, in chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. The the passage that he quotes is interesting because it appears three times in Scripture. The first time in Isaiah, chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. There we know about Isaiah that his own ministry would be one that was filled with the disappointment of being met with the disbelief and continued unrepentance of the people of Israel as they were being warned to repent unless they uh, be conquered by uh, their enemies and taken into exile. The general effect of Isaiah's preaching, God said, would be to further harden already calloused hearts and to totally deafen already unhearing ears. Now the irony is obvious to us, isn't it? That a message from God about the need to repent, about the need to turn from our sin and rebellion against Him, would actually bring, a, bring about entrenched unrepentance. That hearing a warning about our sin and the effects of it, a, a, a generous and gracious call to repent, would actually lead someone into more, a more hardened state of, of sinful rebellion against God, but yet that was true in Isaiah's life and ministry. He preached to the people of Israel, turn, repent, quit your sinning, quit your idolatry, uh, be faithful to God again. And if you do, he'll save you from the disaster that's coming. But if you don't, you'll be conquered, you'll be taken away, you'll be removed from your homeland. The people heard Isaiah's message and they did not repent. This passage is quoted again for the second time by Jesus. In the Gospels, in Matthew 13, 14, and 15, it shows up in Mark 4 and in Luke 8 as well. And when Jesus uses this passage from Isaiah in Matthew chapter 13, the effect is the same. Matthew chapter 13 is full of Jesus' parables, these stories that illustrate what the kingdom of God will be like. And his disciples at one point come and ask him why he speaks in parables. And the answer he gives them is this quotation from Isaiah chapter 6. 
He says that those hearing the parables will have a mixed response. Among the same group of people, hearing the same parables from Jesus, Jesus himself says that those whose hearts were softened and open to receiving the truth of God would have revealed to them through the parables the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. They would understand more deeply the truths of who God is and what his kingdom is like, that they would be brought to repentance in relationship with Jesus, and yet others still, and maybe more, probably more, would hear the same parables and yet be further deafened and further blinded, uh, blinded by their own continued resistance to the teaching of Jesus. The truth of God, the gospel, is a, a, a blade that cleaves believers from unbelievers. It works in equal and opposite forces. It softens and brings about those whose, heart, whose hearts have already begun to see their need for Jesus. And yet that same, very same truth hardens even further those who are already resistant to it. The third time we see this, this, these words of Isaiah are here in Acts chapter 28, verses 26 and 7. In the case of Paul here in Acts, the results that Isaiah and Jesus both experienced as they preached the kingdom, called to repentance, those same results are confirmed yet again. The truth of the gospel pierces the unbelief of some and simultaneously galvanizes the stern disbelief of others. Paul's statement to the Jewish leaders is that the prophet's words have been confirmed in their very meeting, in that that very day, the same way that they were confirmed most perfectly in the life and the ministry of Jesus. Paul is here saying to them, the reason you disagree about this is because Isaiah said it and Jesus demonstrated it, that everywhere the truth of God goes, it cuts, it draws lines, it divides people, and it always divides on the area of, of repentance. On the, on the issue of needing to say, I'm wrong. God is right. I have blown it. God has fixed it. I am powerless. God is powerful to save. The call to repentance, to turn from thinking the way we have been thinking in our own sin and now submit our lives to Jesus Christ is a hard, it's a hard call to answer. And that's why it divides The gospel divides because it requires each person to recognize the fault of their sin, the fault of their unbelief, that you are wrong. It requires them to have their hearts softened, to have their eyes opened, not by themselves, but by some outside force. We know that to be the Holy Spirit, that they might be able to see the truth of their spiritual need, that their ears might be unstopped to hear the truth and to respond to it. The gospel divides because it draws clear lines between belief and unbelief and between repentance and arrogant self-righteousness. And it does so with surgical precision. I don't want to be a wet blanket in the pulpit this morning, but this is an incredibly important thing, church. Every single person in this room, whether you're a believer You call yourself a Christian, especially if you don't call yourself a Christian. But, well, maybe more especially if you do call yourself a Christian. You need to hear the final warning in Acts to repent of your sin and allow your heart to be softened by the gospel. Listen, these Jews who are with Paul this day are not pagan unbelievers with no understanding of God whatsoever. These are Jewish leaders who understood the Moses and the prophets who said they knew all that God said and yet still they reject his truth. Dear friend, 
There are Christians in this room and in churches like ours all around the world today who say they are Christians but who have not repented of their sin. Who say they are Christians because they go to church and they give their tithe, but their hearts are still far from God. When confronted with the gospel that they need to repent and trust Jesus, that their lives need to change, when confronted about ongoing sin in their life, they push back harder against it and they call themselves Christians. Friends, Christians aren't those people. Christians are those who hear the call to repent and daily answer it. Say, I love this God who sent his son to give his life for me. Who am I? Who am I? Dear Christian, you who know the joy of repentance, the love of the Father that comes through trusting in Jesus, continue to display that wonderful life of repentance and continue to call your recalcitrant brothers and sisters to repentance as well. The gospel cuts. It cuts in churches too. And those who are on the believing side of the gospel are not just those who self-identify as Christians, but those who by the evidence of their very lives have shown, I love Christ. I follow him. And I am willing to admit when I am wrong and ask God for forgiveness. Dear friends, hear the final word in Acts to repent to turn from your sin. And if you are one of those Christians who has been trusting in in yourself and your church attendance and what you can do your entire life to be right with God, repent today. Enter into the joy of real repentance. Enter into the joy of true salvation. Enter into the joy of obedience to Jesus who gave his life for you and rose from the dead. This one truth remains, that the one sun that melts the ice is the same sun that hardens the clay. The gospel is the light of God that shines upon the earth, hardens the hearts of those who are already calloused, softens the hearts of those who are ready to receive. Let us preach the gospel, the gospel that that divides because there's confidence that, that in its dividing, it is working, that in its dividing, it is doing what God has intended for it to do. Let us have confidence in the gospel that compels. Let us have confidence in the gospel that divides. Finally, verses 30 and 31 Let us have confidence in the gospel that conquers. Let us have confidence in the gospel that conquers. We see the gospel continuing to conquer in Acts. We've we've seen it from, from Acts 1 all the way through Acts 28, but here we see it again in at least three different ways. First of all, the gospel conquers with hospitality. The gospel conquers with hospitality. Luke ends this volume by showing us how the gospel will continue to grow and to expand throughout the world and among all ethnicities. First, it, is conquer, it conquers not by force, but with hospitality. The gospel does not conquer by force, but with hospitality. See Paul here in his imprisonment under house arrest for two years, not railing against the establishment. Not plotting a violent takeover of the Jewish world or the Roman world. But see Paul hospitably welcoming all to the home where he's under arrest. Both Jew and Gentile. Lost people into his home to hear the gospel. When arrested and imprisoned for the hope of Israel, Paul's response is not overthrow the government. Get rid of the Jews. Plan a protest in the streets. Elect new officials. His response is, 
Come to my house. I've got a wonderful story to tell you. All right, I've got some food to eat too. Dear friends, the gospel is above all else a gospel of welcome and invitation. Because God invites and, in, and welcomes all people to join his true family by trusting in Jesus, so also, dear friends, must his children extend hospitality and welcome to all that they might hear the gospel to. Now, this doesn't mean that, that, that we take a soft stance on the gospel. It doesn't mean we take a soft stance on the, the, the necessity of repentance. It doesn't mean that we, that we cower in shame about the dividing force of the gospel. No, we already know that we have confidence that the gospel does that. But we preach confidently this gospel that divides, but with hospitality. Inviting people into our homes. Sharing life with others. It's what Paul did. This isn't a new thing. It's not a millennial thing. It's not a Gen X thing, opening our homes and doing life together. It's a biblical thing. We see people all over Scripture getting together around the table for food and to share the gospel. And at the end of Paul's life, near the end of his ministry, we see him doing the same thing. The gospel conquers with hospitality, but the gospel also conquers through bold preaching. It conquers through bold preaching. With every beloved soul that enters his home, Paul proclaims the kingdom of God and teaches about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness, Luke tells us. See that in verse 31? He welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus with all boldness. Again, notice the nonviolent, rational, gracious, conquest of the gospel through bold and compassionate proclamation of the clear and costly realities of our need to turn from sin and to submit our hearts and our wills to Jesus. Paul doesn't shrink back from the cutting nature of the gospel, the dividing nature of the gospel. Paul doesn't, doesn't step away or take a soft stance on the, on the clear call of the gospel of Jesus to repent of your sin. No, he doubles down on that thing. But he does it with all hospitality. You can be bold and compassionate at the same time. Those two things are not mutually exclusive. You can be bold with the gospel, brave with the gospel, courageous with the gospel, and still compassionate for people that you know the gospel is going to intersect their life in, in, in ways that they're not prepared for it to. It is possible, so do it. Third, the gospel conquers. Conquers through hospitality, through bold preaching, but it also conquers without hindrance. The gospel conquers conquers without hindrance. Do you know what that means? It means the gospel cannot be stopped. Nothing can slow it down or hold it back or keep keep it from doing all that Christ intends for it to do until he returns. These final words in the book of Acts, verse 31, Paul is proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. These final words describe the manner in which the gospel of Jesus has spread from Acts chapter 1, verse 8 to this point. From the moment Jesus said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and all Samaria and even to the ends of the earth, until now, this is how the gospel has moved, without hindrance. Kings have put apostles to death. Centurions and Jewish rulers and others have, have arrested and, and beaten and imprisoned believers. And yet the gospel hasn't stopped. If anything, it has sped up. You remember Jesus' promise 
You remember his instruction to his disciples as the book began from Acts 1.8? You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the ends of the earth. All throughout this book, many threats have come against the gospel, and not a one of them has been successful. Despite all of the efforts to stop the gospel, to slow it down, to put obstacles in its path, it has accelerated. The kingdom of God has expanded. The good news of salvation has reverberated and grown to have serious impact, even here in the most pagan and influential city in the world at the time, in Rome. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not haphazardly limping along in Acts. It is conquering the hearts and minds of sinners who by it are made aware of their need to know their creator and to be made right with him. Dear friends, the gospel is on the move today. The gospel is on the move in this room. I trust it and believe it. Among Christians who have sins that still need to be confessed and repented of. It is moving in the hearts of unbelievers today who have not ever repented of their sins or trusted in God. The good news that Jesus Christ saves sinners as they trust in him is having its effect in our children and our grandchildren in this room and every single Sunday. Why would we ever preach anything other than that? The gospel conquers with hospitality, through bold preaching, and without hindrance. Dear friend, recognize this morning the triumphant power of the gospel. Just take it in. Recognize the triumphant power of the gospel that 2,000 years later, Christianity, the, the people of God created by the gospel, are not slowing down. They're not shrinking. Now, in our culture, we may find ourselves to be more of a, a minority, but in other parts of the world, the gospel is still exploding. China, India, places all throughout Sub Saharan Africa, the gospel is exploding. So recognize the triumphant power of the gospel and allow it to conquer your heart and allow it to conquer the hearts of others through you as you hospitably, with bold preaching and without hindrance, share the gospel with them. We often talk about and pray for open doors for sharing the gospel, and we should. We should pray, God, open doors for me to share the gospel. But how often have we prayed that the door that God might open for us to share the gospel would be the front door of our homes? If you can't say amen, say ouch. We regularly pray for boldness to declare the truths of God. We want to be bold. We want to be courageous. But when opportunities clearly present themselves, do we, with boldness and humility, offer up the gospel to those who are listening? Brothers and sisters, I I don't want to be discouraging this morning. I really don't. I want us to be encouraged. I don't want us to be discouraged by times we failed to share the gospel with boldness and conviction and hospitality. I've failed to share the gospel in those ways in my life in the last month, okay? But I'm not looking to discourage us here. Rather, I want us to be encouraged. I want us to be encouraged by the triumphant gospel and the countless opportunities that still await us for declaring the glory of King Jesus and the promise of salvation by faith in his name. I want us to be encouraged by the end of Acts where we see Paul in prison, but the gospel moving without hindrance. The, the apostle, maybe, that as many people would probably refer to, the dude who wrote 
most of the books of the New Testament is in prison because of the gospel. And the thing, and the gospel is still exploding all over the earth. Let us not be discouraged by our failures. Let us be encouraged by the power of the gospel. A power outside of ourselves. A, a power that, that Christ gives to us in the Holy Spirit to be his witnesses. Let us be encouraged this morning. Let us be spurned to action by the picture of the conquering kingdom of Christ in Acts and of a vision of that same kingdom exploding in growth once more in our day. Let us be encouraged by how Acts ends. We serve and worship a risen Savior who is King of kings. He is Lord of lords. He has defeated sin and death. And he intends for the gospel of his kingdom to reach the ends of the earth. And, friends, he intends to use you and me and other believers around the world to do it. So let's be encouraged. Jesus has invited us into his kingdom conquest. And it's not a violent, it's not a political, it's not a a radical conquest, but it is a call to repentance. It's a conquest through, through the work of the Spirit and the good news of salvation. Let us join our king in this conquest by hospitably, humbly, with boldness, and without hindrance, sharing the gospel. So thus ends Acts with a sort of implied to be continued. How then, church, having studied this glorious history of the kingdom of Christ in its earliest days, How then will we take up the next leg of the race? How will the movement of the gospel in Acts continue with us? Do you understand that Acts is not just the story of Paul and Peter and the apostles? It's the story of us and the church as well. About how God continues to grow his kingdom through the gospel of Jesus through his people. How will the movement of the gospel in Acts continue with us? Surely it must. So let us pray that it does. Let us pray, church, that the gospel movement, the kingdom conquest of Jesus does continue with us. Let us pray for obedience to be witnesses that Christ has made us to be with the gospel. Dear church, may we be bold and unhindered with the news that Jesus Christ died for sinners and was raised again to give salvation from sin and eternal life to all who entrust their lives to him. We have been entrusted with a glorious gospel. We have been empowered by a glorious king. And we have been given a glorious calling to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that Christ has commanded us. This work is to be continued. Church, let's get to work.